let's explore the construction of David Kirkland's mind. David is an architect and arguably best known for being the leader of the design team of the Eden Project, which some have named the eighth wonder of the world. David has a deep interest in technology and the design process of nature, and he's also the founder of D-Lab, a social enterprise which works within communities to encourage creativity for the benefit of people, places, and our planet, which is where we happen to meet. David, it is so great to be speaking with you. <laughs> I think the first question I'd like to ask is what is your definition of an artist? I guess my definition of an artist is someone who, well, I'll, I'll quote somebody who, who, who said something to me a while back. It was that artists show us things that we can't see for ourselves. And I quite like that because when we talk about human culture and, uh, and the way we think in our different realities and uh, in our own little worlds, and we kind of come together as, I think to date, 7 billion people, I think, on this planet, something to, somehow having to get by and actually live together in relative harmony. It's quite incredible. And that means that um, culture making is, is dependent on being able to see others to see the other and uh, things that I can't possibly imagine or, or, or think about for myself. Someone else will show me how to do that. And I think artists help us to see things that are not seeable, if you know what I mean. Uh, a song without words, you know, how do you, music is a song without words, to show us using a different language uh, without the limitation of words. So I think, I think artists are people that show us things that, that we need to see to collectively bind and form, form ourselves into a cohesive culture and community. Uh, and, and, and they show us things that uh, they see deeply. And, and then they find a way communicating that, whatever that may be, music, pottery, art, architecture, whatever it is, uh, well, effectively taking dust in some form or another and creating something that communicates a message to me. I'm glad that you included architecture in that list <laughs> because <laughs> when you look at the Eden Project, there's so much that it helps us to reflect on you know the nature and also mm. our um, relationship with nature. Yeah. Do you consider yourself with this definition? Do you consider yourself to be an artist? I first and foremost considered myself probably as a craftsman and a maker, and then I guess we talk about ourselves as designers. Um, but the education of an architect is unique because we have to have our head in the clouds and our feet on the ground. So we're engineers. Uh, we have to talk about money and um, diplomacy and all sorts of uh, things about building communities and relationship with people. Um, but at the same time, we have to dream and we have to kind of balance these things. And, and I guess most architects probably were, were very schizophrenic people because we, we straddle this liminal sort of line between these two things, which most people don't have to navigate in the world. And with that being said, if my head is in the clouds and I'm up in the clouds bringing something back down, to the ground and trying to help people see things that they can't see until it's built, which is the hardest thing, of course, to bring people along with a vision. Um, I think that, yes, we probably are artists, but we're not just artists. We can't exist. We're probably the only artists that actually have to have our creations made by somebody else. Uh, we, we design things on paper and then we instruct, but we do not make anything. And as you describe like your head being in the clouds and being in this artistic space, how, with all the um, tasks that come along with it and this groundedness that you describe, how do you keep your creative juices flowing and keeping your head in that cloud, as you yeah. described? Yeah, uh, that is an excellent question. And 
if you speak to a lot of young architects or people who are just a, embark upon their careers, uh, the passion and the energy tends to focus around that mostly, that we're going to be creating these things and we're, we can instruct dirt to become something like a cathedral or, or whatever. And it's this amazing uh, thing that you participate on. But the more you progress in your career and, and understanding what the profession of an architect is, it turns out that actually you do less and less of that, which is a, a big frustration. And I'd say, uh, other than saying we're, we're creative because we're being creative with the money or budgets or diplomacy or whatever, in terms of the, the real context of creativity, I would say that we are probably about 20 or 30% of our time is spent doing that, which can be an enormously frustrating thing because you just get bogged down with, um, with your feet on the ground, as it were. Uh, and not enough time with your head in the in, in the clouds, um, and we search search out for that. And and most of us, uh, the time that we really get invigorated and and just so so sort of uh, fired up and, and and sort of on fire, is when we start with a blank piece of paper, when you have a problem and you've laid out on the table all the issues, all the problems, all the liabilities, all the assets of whatever a project may uh, may may bring forth. And you have to sit with a blank piece of paper and you have to say, right, how are we going to do this? So you have to go up into the clouds and you actually have to dream. But in dreaming, you have to you have to have one eye on the ground with all these other things, I guess, like a conductor. And you have to be balancing those dreams with the practical things. And they, they're not necessarily things that are negative to bring down your creativity. They're things that actually can really uh, make it, make it, go to places that you couldn't have imagined because you're bounded by things that you can't release yourself from. So, I mean, for an architect, sometimes when you're, when you're young, you think if I could just have a greenfield site in the middle of some pristine countryside, I could do amazing things, but actually they're the hardest types of projects because there's, there's nothing there and you have to kind of just dream up a context and and, and other things. Uh, And the, the most exciting buildings I think emerge from things where there are problems outside of your control. And they force you and they restrict you in many different ways. And you have to find and navigate a route through this to come out with something that's exceptional. It has to satisfy all the stakeholders' uh, criteria. But you have to come up with something that inspires people and and takes people to the next level. Uh, And that blank piece of paper, that process, it's, it's it's an immensely hard thing, as most creatives know, most artists know, to start with a blank thing. And it, I personally find it torture to begin with, because you, some, if you're under pressure and you've got to deliver something in a certain amount of time, you kind of feel that pressure. You have to deliver, and you're not sure if it's going to happen. Sometimes it'll happen very quickly. Sometimes it'll take a long, long time. But as soon as you get the inkling or the bones of something or just the sniff of something that's possible, it's like you've, you've committed to this, um, this ski slope and you, you're sitting on a tea tray and you lift your hands up. And you you just go, and it feels very exhilarating, and, and and that's an amazing adventure. When you're sitting with that blank page, and you have that, I guess, problem to solve, as you put it, are there a set of questions that you often ask yourself each time in your practice? Uh, yes, I mean, generally, if you if you're an architect and you're working within a big established practice or, or or someone else's practice or something else where there's a leader, it might even be your team leader, you you. Part of the creative process is you have to understand what are they what are they trying to express how are you helping them uh, you know you're the person to enable you're the helper and you have to tie into that uh, if you have your own practice and you're leading a design team or something like that you you can set that vision you you have to 
there's a series of I think subconsciously we've all got these little tests and um, my processes I, I probably sketch tiny little sketches on hundreds of pieces of paper dotted around and I, I I kind of do a I might start with an idea and I think that's probably something that's going to work and I and I start asking all sorts of questions of it and as soon as it starts coming back giving answers saying no or no I'll move on to the next thing and usually. Uh, by the time you think you're, you're fairly confident with this and you'll be doing some loose sketches, you think, okay, yeah, this is great. I'm so excited. This is this is going to be wonderful. And then the next step is to move up to a scaled drawing, say in CAD on the computer or something. And then suddenly you realize that circle that you were designing doesn't actually fit on the site. And, and you, you get a little bit disappointed because you think, oh my gosh, that was going to be so great. But then you've got to move back to the piece of paper and, and start understanding it a bit more. So each step of the way is actually... Un- unfolding and uncovering more of your understanding of what the site is, what the constraints are, what the scale of the place is. And it's this iterative process. For, for me, I, I call it an organic evolutionary process where you don't know what it's going to be from the start and you enter into the process feeling at risk that it might not turn out elegant. But my process is I, I try and allow the evolution of negative and positive things to come in and direct and filter and move and change things. And I usually end up with something that I couldn't possibly have imagined at the beginning without doing the process. Wow, that's such an open-minded way of seeing the process. What has being an architect and the artist process that you go through taught you about life? Good question. Well, I would say it's a, it's a, it's a, a together thing. It's a journeying into, uh, I think the word is invidiation. Invidi- which is, um, you know, that that sort of um, psychological thing where where you're, you're you're going from a basic piece of raw dust to a, a young person to you know baby to young person to an adult, and you bring forth what it is that you are into the world, and you share that, and and that journey is the powerful thing, and we use our vocations and our work together with our characters to to walk that journey, and and they walk hand in hand, and for me, I think with the, the vocation and the job and the creativity is, is this thing about um, nothing, particularly, I think, failure. Uh, our Western world and our, our culture tends to teach that failure is not a good thing and you shouldn't fail, you know, and a lot of people can get worked up when you fail. And I think the further you progress in your career and the older you get, you sort of learn that ancient wisdom, which is that um, failure is, a, is just a form of iteration. And it's just showing you something that doesn't work. And, and that's more information than you had before. And, and to be able to embrace failure is, is a big thing. Whereas in, a young, in younger days, that's, that's a real taboo thing. You, you're very frightened of it. So you don't take risks. Um, and that is the same in, outside of, uh, in life outside of our, our vocations as well, you know, in, in, in doing the things that we do in life. So I think uh, embracing failure as part of development and growth is a, is a massively important thing and not to be afraid of it. Oh, that's so interesting. That reminds me of what Ed Catmull, the president of Pixar Animation and Disney Animation, says about failure. He says that actually mistakes aren't a necessary evil, they aren't evil at all, and that they are an inevitable consequence of doing something new, and as such, should be seen as valuable. Mm. Without them, we'd have no originality. Yeah, 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 and 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 I think I don't know if it's Facebook or one of these companies. Their motto in the early days, I think it was, you know, break things quickly and fail fast. They want you to embrace failure and break things, test things, push things to the limit, 
And, and sometimes, particularly with architects, I think as well, because we're quite, um, we can be quite OCD and quite sort of buttoned up and uh, like things ordered and tidied. And uh, we don't like to see necessarily that mess. Um, and uh, we want to see order. But actually, you know, we need the mess. The, the chaos and the order need to, need to travel side by side. Why did you choose the path of an architect? <laughs> I, I guess because ever since I was about five, everyone said he's going to be an architect. <laughs> really? I think, uh, I think I got to, um, I think I was in, uh, I think it was about 15. Uh, and then we started have to, having to consider careers with a career advisor. And I thought, architects, what do they do? They, they just build houses. That sounds really boring. And then the career advisor said to me, you, you should go into electronics, electrical engineering or the, or, or the Air Force. And I think he said that to uh, all 20 of my other friends. Um, and I thought, yeah, yeah, fine, we'll go and do that. And, um, and th- within two years, that sort of didn't pan out. And I, get, I think my father also had a hand in saying, no, you know, you, you're, you're, you're made to be an architect. We've got to get you into architecture. And I was a bit ambivalent. And, it, and fortunately, I had, had that um, support and he sort of pushed me into something. I thought, fine, okay, we'll go and do it. Um, and then once I embarked upon it, I realized that I couldn't possibly actually do anything else, I don't think. So um, I... I you know, I, I accept that I am, I am what I am, and that's what I'm made to be. And uh, I, I don't. I, there's no alternative, really. <laughs> what was driving you so much? What in 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 the in becoming an architect? Yeah. Um, it's an, just that essential thing where you can dream of something and you can take dust, and you can you can instruct it. You instruct the dust. Not necessarily. We may not be the agent. We might be the people that bring the instruction well the, the client comes with the the um the vision and says look i want to do this and then he makes us the agent in regards to making that vision happen but then we instruct um the builder and if you work all the way back the thing that i'm most fascinated with is, is how do you get to the top of the stream right at the source of the stream which is most important what are the things that are most important up there and they're very elemental i find them very sort of archetypal and ele- elemental and, uh, and for me, it's about saying um, everything that we make in our culture is actually starts off as dust. And, and to be able to, uh, in some ways, I see it as an extension of nature. We're not outside of nature. We are part of nature. And we're kind of extending nature. We're extending the garden by making new things that were never there before. And we're using dust. And to be able to say, well, there's dust. We're going to dream a little bit. And we're going to talk a little bit. And then someone's going to actually turn that into reality. And then suddenly you've got cathedrals and you've got uh, museums, you've got cities, you've got these amazing things. When you talk about uh, nature and our relationship to nature, what is it that you are aiming to communicate? Ah, good question. Um, Well, I've always been fascinated with, well, uh, been driven by what was previously called sustainability. Uh, now it's called regenerative design. There's all sorts of, we always have new buzzwords, but they're basically essentially saying, how do you how do you view our culture and all the things we do and make as being a subset of the created order nature, not something outside of it? And if it is going to be a subset of it, then it has to align and um, fit within the way creatures, uh, create, creation's paradigm and uh, methodology work. And it's best to, if you want to do that, then you you better to understand it. You have to try and dig as much as you can. So I'm fascinated with the science and nature in itself. How do systems work? 
And in the West, we have a uh, part of the problem, actually, the reason why we've got to where we've got is because we have a very sort of um, mechanical view, a Newtonian view about how nature works and how things work. Whereas in the East, it's very sort of uh, systemic, uh, you know, and, and, and first peoples and indigenous cultures have always understood that, you know, it's a system. We've sort of made things that are not necessarily aligned to the way nature works very well. And particularly now we come at a time where we realize that we've really got to do something because it's, it's got pretty bad. And actually part of the communication in regards to the sustainability agenda moving forward is to, is to help people, particularly businesses, to understand that it is entirely possible to do these things when they're aligned with nature and continue to make business and to make products and to make, you know, we're not reverting back to a primitive lifestyle. We can, we can continue. There are ways of doing it. We have the technology. The architecture that I'm most fascinated by is, is first people's uh, architecture, indigenous cultures architecture, because I don't see any boxes. I, I see organic forms and I see forms that are very appropriate for where they live. They might be nomads. They might not have many, much resource. They might live in a certain kind of climate. And they're able to make these astonishing pieces of architecture, but very tied into the resources that they have available, plus rich in cultural meaning. And, and the, the building that caps it all for me is, is an igloo. To see how an igloo without architects has uh, manifested itself from just nothing but ice is so finely tuned environmentally inside and outside. It's absolutely astonishing. And to me, a, a building like that is literally an extension of creation. It's, it's just... A, a new thing that's just an extension of the way the creation, the created order works. So for, for me, it's always trying to understand how ecology works, how do healthy ecosystems work. And one of the things that um, has been developing in the last 20, 30 years is a field of um, design and science called biomimicry, where these biomimeticists are looking at the way creation and nature work to understand how you can replicate that to then uh, 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 transfer it to the way we do technologies. So, for instance, a spider's web, for instance, is, is twice as strong as, as, as our best material, Kevlar. Okay, and Kevlar is made from, you know, loads of oil, concentrated sulfuric acid, uh, high pressures, uh, high temperatures. Uh, it's, it's a very poisonous thing. It's a great material, but a very poisonous thing. But, you know, a grasshopper is doing something that performs twice as well at room temperature, no concentrated sulfuric acid, no, 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 um, no poisons and a raw material of chewed up grasshoppers. So, you know, business is asking, well, okay, how do we do that? You know, if we could just use grasshoppers, let's let's have a look at that. And, and so there are ways, there are ways to do this, but we have to understand how systems work. And then we have to design within a system, which is extremely difficult because the human brain can't really understand systemic thinking very well. But fortunately we have tools now, we have the power of computers. We have feedback loops from, from computer systems that give us instant, uh, assessments and calculations, uh, you know, and that's part of um, moving forward with technology to help us. So um, that's the thing that I find exciting going forward. What does, oh yeah, what does architecture in a regenerative world look like? I don't believe the forms are square boxes because, um, I mean, square, we only have square boxes because that's the way manufacturing works. Manufacturing works on a, on, a, on a linear system, which is, you know, it's 100 years old, you know, from, from uh, Henry Ford. You put some material in, you set up a manufacturing process, it cranks away and out, out come black, black cars. They're all the same. You can have any color you want as long as it's black. Um, 
and 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 a square building as i say if you go back and look at uh, first first indigenous cultures um, architecture you'll see that they're not they're not they're, they're organic forms they're they're evolutionary forms they're 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 soft forms that that fit into the environment um and they totally understand their material and how how to do these things but these forms are highly tuned to the way the the air flows through the buildings if you want to cool it or you want to um if you want to warm it or you want to protect it or you want to make a structure that spans they're all um forms that that understand the material to be able to do that um a square box is not something that necessarily responds to uh the environment and if we're going to uh, make our uh, buildings um uh you know utilize um renewable energy like solar passive solar gain for sunlight for heating uh cooling uh, orientation daylighting all these sorts of things um protection from the elements you need to design a form more almost like an organism um that that responds to these things now the problem is the manufacturing processes didn't really um don't really match that because then it becomes extremely expensive to make curvy stuff but now we're uh, moving in, in forward into uh, an era of robotics and 3d printing where you can have anything you want and it's not going to be a cost premium it can just be made because it's digital information feeding into a, a robot that could do anything and we're beginning to find now that we can make um uh, sort of free form forms that respond and fit into the environment more economically having said that if you were if we were commissioned to do a building in times square you know you or or a row of uh, uh victorian houses <laughs> you're not going to do a blob you you because we also have to tie into the environment of what is the local culture and that could be historic there's deep meaning in those things for people so you've got to respect them but on balance i think we're able to make architecture that responds to the environment in a soft and benign way is that always your first step in your process is observing the community or the area and the yeah the people that you're yeah, affecting yeah i mean the first step for me in if you're starting off on an evolutionary process what you've got to do before you start anything on the piece of paper is collect your information So you've got to collect what do you know about the site what do you know about the people what are the issues what what is the client what what's the budget everything you've got to get all everything on the table and then you on one side you're going to have assets and the other side you're going to have liabilities um so for instance on the Eden project which you referred to um you know um the the negative thing was that it was a big uh, disused clay mine that um had some real problems with it it flooded a lot um and um you think well this is the wrong place to build um but if you let these things if you if you orchestrate these things on the, ta- on, the on the table and you start um creatively managing them in a creative way you can use the the liabilities to become assets and you can make features of them and they can manipulate and inform your architecture and obviously one of those things uh if you're dealing in anything that's connected at all with people or other communities you have to understand them what is the community what do, what do they want what don't they want what don't they like um what is meaning to them what's important um and you have to listen to these things that's not to say you have to bow to it all the time because otherwise we'd never move forward but it's important that we are people that help make humans thrive and that's what cities are cities and and we make things for the benefit of people and humanity to thrive and and that's our role as architects or should be our role as architects is in creating the backdrop for that to happen Can you remember a time where your view of life 
was somehow shattered and transformed? Uh, everyone goes through a, a sort of dark night of the soul, as they might say, where basically there's valleys and troughs that, that you, you journey on. And these valleys and troughs, I think, are things that um, are there to help you grow and help you evolve. Um, architecturally speaking, I suppose, in terms of my uh, design outlook, um, when I set up my own practice out in the rural areas, the first project I had was from a friend of mine who um, also um, owned uh, lots of brick companies around the country, creating beautifully handcrafted bricks. Um, and he said, you know, I'd like you to come and build my house for me. Um, and I was very excited. I thought, fantastic, brilliant, wonderful. And uh, I said, well, we're ready to go. Let's do this. And of course, in my head, I'm thinking, you know, lots of glass, lots of steel, things I've already imagined it. I've already, you know, as I said before, I've already drawn my with my 2B pencil and my beret. I've already assessed what's going to happen. And he said, but um, you need to understand, first of all, that we're going to be using brick and clay tiles. And, uh, and you know, we're, we're, we're going to build the building from that, my bricks and my clay tiles. And I was like, I, I sort of heart skipped a beat. And I thought, oh my gosh, no, no, it's so old fashioned. Why would you do that? And um, he said, no, you know, if you want the job, you've got to listen to the client. And, 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 and not only that, I had to listen to the planning officer. He said, no, 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 it's going to look traditional. And faced with either not having a job and not eating or having a job and having a go, we embarked upon this. And, and the more I dug down into this thing, like, oh, I hate bricks. Why do we have to do bricks? But then I looked into, you know, a brick. What's, what's so special about a brick? And actually, when you realize a brick is, it's, you know, the use of bricks is six, 7,000 years old. And a brick is a piece of worthless dirt that is nothing. Someone picks it up, pats it into a square shape, dries it, dreams, and it then becomes a cathedral. It's a remarkable thing. And it's the size of a man's hand. It's, it's an amazing thing. Um, and so I thought, oh, okay, that's kind of clever. I like that. That's handy. And then, of course, in my journey with him on this building, which became in its highly unconventional form, brick form, it's very plastic and organic, but it is made with traditional materials. So it fitted in with the planning officer's requirements. When, when she first saw it, she thought, oh my gosh, is this Star Trek or whatever, you know, because she was looking at it as, as a crazy organic plan. But when you see the building, it's very, it looks like it's been, it's timeless and it's made from the local, local Chiltern materials. Um, but the journey with, with my friend uh, was a journey about understanding, um, you know, the cultural value of some of these historic things, why they're there, where these materials, where this craftsmanship comes from, how this craftsmanship and these materials and local businesses tie together to, to form community. And in regards to sustainability, bottom line, which is ecology, uh, society and economy in balance, you know, suddenly you start thinking, gosh, yeah, we've got to start thinking about society, you know, and that means business, that means local crafts, local expressions of people's meaning. And uh, all just through the simple journey with a brick. And now I'll only use bricks. Wow, <laughs> that's a nice story. Yeah. <laughs> but can I say something? Yeah. The thing about a brick, and I keep saying to my friend, is because he was uh, very complaining all the time about the fact that brick, the energy costs uh, of the gas from Russia, was a real problem. And uh, it's causing the bricks to be too expensive. And, you know, we can't be doing that. And I'm saying, well, why, why are you putting gas into the bricks? Why are we not just making bricks without the gas? Why can't we just make square blocks, dry them, and then build the houses? Oh, no, we can't do that. We can't do that. But I have a local brickmaker up the road who's, who helps us build our houses now. And, and we have this research project where we 
you know, we're saying, look, Africans have been making mud bricks for 6,000 years. Why can't we be doing that? Surely it's cheaper. We haven't managed using them externally, yes, but in Europe they do. Just don't make sure they don't get wet. But we use them internally. And now we're making these bricks uh, from chalk because we're in the Chilterns. So we, when we dig out the foundations, we get a lot of chalk. So we make these bricks out of chalk. And now we've done um, these special designs where they, they almost look like Lego blocks where they can build, they, they, you don't need mortar. You just stack them. And that means they can be recycled. You can re- remove them and, and rebuild something. And all this is, is, you know, a bit of chalk, dust, uh, a bit of clay packed into a nice material. And then suddenly it becomes part of a, a, a nice building. And to me, that's a fascinating thing, taking things that are considered to be of no value, dirt, and making them into something that is high value. And I think, you know, we need to learn about that if we're going to do sustainability. What are you most proud of that you've achieved in your career as an architect? Um, well, I guess through the journey of whatever it is, 35 years of being an architect, um, different stages, I'm proud of different things. Like um, I designed, uh, worked on some bigger projects, you know, big spans, things like this, where they were they were quite technological problems. And it was quite nice to find creative ways of solving those. So that's quite nice. Um, I'm uh, sort of proud of, I mean, the, the, the Eden Project uh, solution, shall we say, that everyone's fascinated by, oh, it looks alien and it looks like something from Mars. Um, uh, the client's brief when we first had him come on board was that he wanted the eighth one of the world. So, you know, we hopefully delivered something along those lines. But it's it's not, to me, it's not the icon of, of those buildings uh, to understand why they're like that. Those buildings are really e- evolved. They're, they're definitely evolved uh, forms responding to many, many different issues and solving problems for many different people um, to make it happen. And uh, the, shall we say, the DNA or the, uh, the the genetic code of how that happened, I find uh, was a very uh, enlightening and enjoyable process uh, doing that, not necessarily the outcome, the shape of the buildings. And so taking that on board and moving that forward into, we, we obviously do smaller buildings now, um, but equally sensitive and sometimes equally complex, um, uh, building in um, meaning to people and culture and the grain of the local traditions and crafts. I, I find that being able to do that is quite a, quite, quite a privilege and a joy. Final question. If you could live inside the mind of another artist for a day... Mm. Or I will allow another architect. But that does come <laughs> yeah. under the umbrella of artist. Okay. If you could live inside the mind of another artist for a day, who would it be? And what would you specifically like to explore whilst you were there? Ooh, um, my fascination is, is, I don't know why it is, but I always endeavour to find, and maybe it's because we're architects, so I like to know what's the foundations like. Show me the foundations, you know, and then, I, then I'll know it's a good building. Um, and and I, I like to know what are the foundations of culture? What's the foundations of society? What's the foundations of what makes us human? And um, I'm fascinated by, in, in terms of art, I, I guess it would be um, indigenous, first, the first art. What, you know, and, and, and what, I fa- what, what fascinates me there is there were no heroes. I don't think there were. Um, maybe the guy in the, in, the, in the tribe was the hero, who knows? 
but what are these marks that they made and these these shapes and these figures and these paint primitive paintings deep inside caves they 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 look very very simple but they're so so tied in with deep deep meaning almost spiritual meaning to these people and stuff like that so it's a foundational thing it's the thing that got us off the ground to become uh you know the dominant species in 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 in, in this world and to be able to sustain uh, living uh, um, life of seven billion people on the planet, and um, so if you ask me who 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 exactly, I would go back to a thing I'm fascinated with at the moment is is a is a site in I think it's in southern Turkey and it's called Gebekli Tepe, and Gebekli Tepe is just being unearthed. It's a recent unearthing of some huge monuments, and and, a, and an early civilization, and um, these huge, huge stones, which were 6,000 years before Stonehenge, okay? Uh, 3,000 years, this is 12,000 years ago, 3,000 years before the birth of the agricultural revolution. We were still hunter-gatherers. And the common consensus in history is that um, when we understood how to, um, uh, you know, farm, we could store up food, and then we could have a greater number of people living in one place. And therefore, a city evolved. This this place is turning this whole thing upside down because this is three thousand years before farming, and these place this place is so big and so huge, uh, and there are many many um, of these um, buildings that they built. Uh, uh, some of these um, these stones are sixty sixty uh, tons, with a top ten tons in size with amazing carvings of animals and, and glyphs and things. We don't understand what they mean. But as an architect, I do know that if you're going to do something like that, you're going to need hundreds, if not thousands of people to help you. And if you're going to have them all on one spot, first of all, you have to get them behind a vision. Like, why would they want to do this? And it takes, you know, years, decades to do this. It's backbreaking work. Uh, and how are you going to feed them? How did they feed them? How have you got 500, 1,000 people in one location and you're feeding them? And this shows that this is probably the birth of where the cities came because the food came because they were trying to sustain this group of people to do this endeavor. What is this endeavor? Why was it so important for them? Was it a place of, was it a, a temple? What was it? What was the meaning of this place? And if you go and look at it and look at the, the, the images and stuff like that, you'll see these remarkable um, sculptures that unlike anything else we've seen, um, from a from a, a civilization that's lost, and we don't know much about it, but um, there was something, there was some story, there was some narrative that was so powerful and so important that they did it, and they sustained themselves um, managerially, <laughs> and also physically with food and families and people, and and that as a piece of art, as a piece of um, creativity. With I can't see much of a functional uh, or, or subject, uh, objective purpose to it, other than maybe sacrifices or whatever. I don't know. But you know that's that's fascinating, and and that to me seems to be the 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 stepping stone for for basically cities like London and um, bigger cities that we do, or moving to Mars and building cities. I don't know, but that's that's where we kick off, and then and then who are the people that are telling the stories now? Who who who's weaving the narratives to keep us together? To continue pouring our energies into this collective endeavour and keep us all safe. David Kirkland, thank you so much 
for your time and you. for letting us yeah. enter your thought process. It's been <laughs> wonderful. Well, thank you. It's been absolutely fantastic. And I, and I really appreciate it because I, <laughs> these things I don't think about very much. I, I read lots of books and things like that. And I'm fascinated by this, but it's, it's lovely to spend a short amount of time to actually try and put them together and formulate them and, and, and have them tested. So much appreciated. Very welcome. Thank you so much. If you'd like to support us, please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. And share this episode with a friend who you think will also enjoy this conversation. This show is brought to you by Slow Cooked Productions. The poster artwork was created by the talented graphic designer Kleber Almeida. And the soundtrack that you're hearing was created specifically for Slow Cooked by the awesome composer Wild Camp. I am your host, Louise Salter. Thank you for listening to Slow Cooked. <laughs>